There's been a theme uh, thus far in our service, and it's been a lot about new birth, from Ellen's baptism uh, to the Cuba testimonies where they saw a number of new births. And of course, at the center of all this is Advent season where we celebrate the birth of Jesus. But Advent goes beyond that. We celebrate the birth of Jesus, which then in turn births something in our hearts. And that's what we see here this morning in this song that Zechariah writes. It's the second of the songs. Mary's was last week. This is Zechariah's. And what we see in all these is that a song is birthed in the heart of Mary. A song is birthed in Zechariah's heart. And so therefore, Advent is about a song being birthed in our hearts. Before we jump into Zechariah's song of prophecy, I want to look at some background, okay? Because every song that's written, think about just songwriters, the music you listen to, it all comes out of a story, right? Songs don't just drop out of the sky out of thin air, right? They're written out of experience. And if you look at the lyrics of songs, you can learn something about who wrote the song. Something was going on in that person's life. And certainly here, Zechariah writes this song out of an experience that we see in the beginning of Luke chapter one. And I'm gonna summarize it for you because I think it's gonna give even more weight to what he actually writes as we get into it. So who was Zechariah? He was a priest. What kind of priest was he? Well, we learn in the beginning of Luke one that under the, the reign of King David, the priests were organized into 24 divisions. And each division would serve in the temple in Jerusalem twice a year for a week at a time. And so Zechariah served in one of these divisions uh, at the temple in Jerusalem. He was probably a, a, a priest that served in a local synagogue in a country town. And twice a year, he came to the big city. He came to Jerusalem. And he served his time in the temple. We also learned that his wife Elizabeth was barren uh, and that they were well beyond childbearing years. So Zechariah gets to uh, Jerusalem. He and his division, they're serving in the temple. And we read in, in verse 9 of Luke 1, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now what's going on here? Well, every day they would literally draw straws the priests would in the division to find out who did what. And there was uh, the, the kind of the pinnacle of the whole ceremony of the liturgy was this burning of incense. It was a very special privilege and a priest could only do it once in a lifetime. And so Zechariah drew that straw and here he is, he's once in a lifetime opportunity to go from the most holy place through the veil in the temple to the holy of holies. And so he would walk in, he would bring incense to the golden altar and he would put it on the coals. And when he did, smoke would rise. And as the smoke rise, it was symbolic of the prayers that he would begin to pray. Thanksgiving, but also every time peace for Israel. And as he's doing this, the angel Gabriel comes and speaks to him and says, Zachariah, your wife Elizabeth is gonna bear a son 
who is going to prepare the way for the Messiah who's going to bring peace to Israel. Now you talk about quick answer prayers. He had just prayed that. Now they prayed it every time. But this time the angel shows up and says, Zechariah, it's answered. And how does Zechariah respond? Didn't believe. We find out in verse 20 that God struck Zechariah mute, unable to speak, because it says he didn't believe the word of the Lord. Now look at this contrast. Here you have a priest full of knowledge, full of understanding of the scriptures, full of, of, of all the liturgy of the temple, and doesn't believe. Contrast that with last week. Young teenage virgin from a small and obscure town who believes. You see, knowledge by itself did not birth this song that Zechariah wrote. You say, so what birthed it? Well, we move on to our text, the beginning of our text. And we learn that finally after nine months, Zechariah has been mute the whole time. Finally, Elizabeth gives birth to a son and she names him John. And everybody looks around and says, well, that's just weird. Because in that day, it was customary that children were named after the fathers and the fathers of the fathers. And so the people say, well, none of your relatives are named John. What are you, what's going on here? So they turn to Zechariah, see if they can get confirmation from him. Well, he can't speak yet. So he asks for a tablet and he writes, his name is John. Now, back in verse 13 of Luke 1, we learn that when God came to Zechariah there at the golden altar in the Holy of Holies through the angel Gabriel, God said, you're going to have a son and you're going to name him John. And so finally, after nine months, Zechariah, he believes. He says, his name's John. This is the one God told me about. And then we learn in verse 64, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. Now, why am I giving you all this background? Because as I said earlier, this song didn't drop out of the sky. What it came from was a man whose, whose unbelief had been transformed into belief. And when that moment came, whenever it was that Zechariah went, this is the son that God promised me, he burst into song. Zechariah was a priest. He was a pastor. He was full of knowledge of the scriptures. What we learn here is, is that, and he had a season of unbelief. He was a faithful priest, but he had a season of unbelief. And what we learn is knowledge by itself doesn't produce faith. You need knowledge to have an informed faith, but knowledge does not produce faith. Intellectual assent does not equal functional heart trust. And so when you look at what Zechariah went through, nine months of being mute, I think it was God's way of saying, I'm not going to let you mess this up, Zechariah. You're just not going to be able to talk. I want you to watch. I want you to be struck with the wonder of what I'm doing. You don't believe after nine months of watching this, we'll see what happens. And so what we see is that Zechariah's unbelief was transformed, but it was transformed through nine months of Suffering, hardship, couldn't speak. You know, the road from intellectual ascent to heart, functional heart belief is most often the road of suffering. 
It's the road of trial. It's the road of things aren't going the way I would like them to go. And in that, God gets our attention, and that's what happened here. And what it produced was this amazing song of prophecy. You see, Advent, which means coming or arrival of Jesus, births a song. It birthed a song for Zechariah, and we're going to look at it. It births vision. As we go through his song, you're going to see this is a song about vision. It's about a new set of lenses. It's about a new set of eyes that see the world from a completely different perspective. It's a set of, of lenses that see things that we, you never could see with just the physical eye, but that now you see through the eyes of faith. And so this song is, in the original language, it's two sentences. It's verse 68 to 75 is one sentence, and you're going to see that's one part of the vision. And then verses uh, 76 through 79, that's the second sentence. And that's the second part of the vision. So what is it birth? What, what components of, of this salvation do we see here? Because it births a vision of salvation accomplished, what we're going to look at first, and then a vision of salvation applied. Let's start with salvation accomplished. As we read this and as you look through it, you're going to see three components of, of a salvation that Zechariah speaks of that's already accomplished. And this is striking because he speaks of it as accomplished and Jesus isn't even born yet. But for Zechariah, and this is where the knowledge comes in because he was a priest, all the promises God had spoken in the Old Testament of this coming Messiah, right? Where he, he, he understood them all and he realized it's here. And so even while Jesus is a baby in the womb, Zechariah speaks of salvation as though it has already been accomplished because Jesus in the womb, it was as good as done. Yes, a lot had to happen in his life, death, resurrection, but it was already accomplished. The Messiah was here. What are the components of this already accomplished salvation? First, a recognition of the awful condition of sin that requires salvation. So the first thing we note in this song is this awful condition of sin. We see it in verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. You look at Israel's history, it is full of oppression. Slaves in Egypt, nations invading, Babylon invading, taking them off into exile, and most often, the cause of them being in the hands of their enemies is their own sin and rebellion. That's the undercurrent through all of Israel's history. You have all these circumstances. Underneath it all is this sin and rebellion. There's another word here in verse 68 that explains a lot about what salvation is and why we need it. And it's the word redeemed. Redeemed. To redeem means to free someone from captivity by payment of a ransom. That's what redeemed means. Free somebody from captivity or slavery by payment of a ransom. And what we learn when you put together the sin and rebellion of Israel that left them at the hands of enemies and this redemption right, is that sin and rebellion is not just a collection of bad choices that you make. Go with me here for a second. If sin is just a collection of poor choices, 
then the answer would be just a swift flap across the face, knock a little sense into you, make better choices. And what we learn here, that's not the case. There would be no need for redemption to be bought out of something if sin were just a collection of poor choices. Sin and rebellion is not just bad choices, it is a deep slavery that you can't get yourself out of. That's what sin is, it's a condition. You can't get yourself out of it. Like a slave who would be on a block in chains, right, in the old slave markets, and somebody would come, and what would they do to get that slave free? They would purchase that slave. They'd be free from the shackles to walk away. They couldn't get themselves off the slave block. And so we learn here in this song that your sin is a condition that you can't get yourself out of. You must be bought, you must be redeemed to be set free. Second component of this already accomplished salvation is that caused, that caused Zechariah to burst into song is this recognition of the author of salvation. Right? Verse 68, he has redeemed his people. There's an author here that's doing the redemption, that's, that's accomplishing the salvation. Uh, verse 69, God has raised up a horn of salvation. You see, if you understand that your sin and rebellion is a slavery that you can't get yourself out of, then you understand that God had to do what you were unable to do. And that is he had to redeem you, which means he had to pay a ransom. He had to write a ransom check to get you free. And that ransom check was the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the ransom payment that sets you free. And that ransom check, I want to note a couple characteristics of that, of that ransom, the blood of Jesus. First of all, it, that ransom check had tremendous power. Tremendous power. The word uh, in verse 69, the horn of salvation, right? That, that horn of salvation is referring not just to power, but to destructive power. That's what it means. That literally, this ransom check, the blood of Jesus, destroyed Satan, destroyed death, destroyed sin, destroyed evil. So that's the first characteristic of the ransom check. It's full of power, the blood of Jesus. Second is that it was written a long time ago. This ransom check, the blood of Jesus, was written a long time ago. Look at verses 72 to 73. It says, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. This is, this is referring to that riveting account when God established this covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. I have, I have referred to it before, but it was that amazing picture of a covenant that was similar to covenants they would strike in the day. And what they would do in the ancient Near East in that day to make a covenant between two people is they would sacrifice an animal, they would divide the animal, literally cut it in half, and the two parties would walk between the animal pieces to say, if I don't uphold my end of the deal, if I don't uphold my end of the covenant, may this happen to me. May I die. And yet what is so riveting in Genesis 15 in that account 
is that when God strikes this covenant with Abraham, sacrifice the animal, the animals are split, the animals split in two, Abraham doesn't walk between them. God does by himself. And what he's saying in that is this. Abraham, when you and your descendants, including everybody sitting in the university center in 2015, here at this service, Abraham, when you and your descendants sin and rebel, may I be cut in half, not you. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus Christ was cut in half. He died instead of you. And so you, you see that, that was announced in Genesis 15. The ransom check was written a long time ago. And what that means is that you're not the author of your salvation. You can't take any credit for it. There's no part of the ransom that God paid, the blood of Jesus, that you can say you contributed anything to. All you contributed was your sin. God did the rest. He did it all. God's the author of salvation. And then the third component of this already accomplished salvation that caused Zechariah to burst into song is a recognition that it's communal. You realize Zechariah has just received this amazing news about his son. And his response in the song is totally communal. I just pointed out in a couple places. Verse 69, salvation for us. Verse 71, that we should be saved. Verse 72, promise to our fathers. Verse 73, to grant us. Verse 74, that we. It, it is this picture of a, of a communal salvation. Jesus didn't come and die for a bunch of individuals. He came and died for a people. Now, what does this mean? Spring semester, senior year of college, Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, three of my friends and I piled into a Jeep Cherokee and headed from Pittsburgh to Key West for spring break. It was April in Pittsburgh. It was snowing and the roads were icy. We, we barely got out of Pittsburgh, had just made it into West Virginia, and we hit a bridge that was frozen over. The Jeep Cherokee starts to spin, it flips. We hit a guardrail that keeps us from careening down an embankment. And we were rescued by the West Virginia Volunteer Fire Department. And we made it to Key West, eventually. But here's what was striking. In the days, in the weeks, even the years following that rescue, the four of us would talk about the rescue. Now, it was deeply personal and unique how each of us were rescued out of this upside down Cherokee. And I could fill the rest of the time with some comical stories. It was unique for each of us, it was personal, but it was never a rescue that we didn't talk about together, that it was private. We talked openly about our rescue. Salvation is intensely personal, but it's not private. It's not private, it's communal. And so it begs the question to, to husbands and wives in the room here, do you talk about your salvation? Do you talk about how you've been redeemed and rescued? Mothers and fathers, 
in the room? Do you talk about, in the, in the presence of your family, do you talk about the rescue, about salvation, about how you've been redeemed? I, I have heard too many stories of children that grow up when they finally land on their own two feet of faith in Christ that tell the story of, my parents never really talked about salvation. They, they left that for Sunday morning to hear from the, the preacher or the pastor or the teacher, but we never talked about it. And, and I've heard some that would say, and my, my father, and I'm going to speak specifically here to fathers for a moment. My father's salvation was private. He didn't talk about it. Now, there could be a couple of reasons for that. It could be that like Zachariah, you might have all the knowledge, but that there was a season or maybe still is a season where it just sits as knowledge and it's never really made it down into your heart where you have no choice but to burst into song and to talk about it with your kids. Salvation's communal. Friends, if you're, if you're a young adult here and you've got friends that, do you talk about salvation? It's communal. It's personal, but it's not private. What does Advent birth in your heart? First, a vision of salvation accomplished. Second part of this vision that Zechariah pens or writes is this vision of salvation applied. Starting in verse 76, Zechariah speaks with a, 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 future, a future orientation about this salvation that's found in Christ. And he's speaking it to his son. He is speaking vision into his son. In fact, I don't know if Zechariah is literally holding his son in his arms. It appears like it, the way it reads. That he's holding his son and he's looking at him and he's speaking this into his son. And what's really amazing about this is he is speaking about something that would happen 30 years later when John the Baptist would make his public appearance to Israel. Now that's vision. Vision of salvation applied. Now, what are the components that we see here in this, in this vision of salvation applied? I, we see two. One is calling and one is context. So calling, prophet, context, death and darkness. Let's start off with, with the calling, vision of calling, verses 76 and 77. And you child, I mean, can you just imagine it? He's holding his boy, looking at him. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Zechariah was raising a prophet who would speak the truth of salvation, of God's salvation found in Jesus Christ. He was raising a prophet that would speak this truth even if it was costly. And the story is in Matthew 14, and you can read about it, John the Baptist spoke truth to King Herod and he got beheaded for it. But that was the son that Zechariah was speaking vision into. It raises the question for us, what kind of next generation disciples are we raising? We're called to raise prophets. 
Let me give you two options here of, of next generation disciples that we can raise. On the one hand, we can raise next generation disciples that are uh, politically correct and that never disturb the peace in a culture that's becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity. Or we can raise bold, courageous prophets that will speak the truth about salvation, the reality of sin, and the need for forgiveness no matter what the cost. And why that's so appropriate is whether it's uh, my generation and we see it or it's the next generation and they see it, but the cost to being a faithful prophet in this country, in this culture, is gonna become increasingly costly. There will be consequences. We already see it in part. And the question is, what kind of next generation disciple, whether it's your children, whether it's somebody that you're raising or pouring into, are you raising? The most spiritually destructive thing that you can do is to raise a child as a self-preservationist that will cower from the truth in the face of consequences. In the vision of what we see in this song, in the vision of what we see in our land is that, that, that raising prophets is gonna become more and more critical because of what's coming. And so are you raising a bold, courageous prophet or a, or a cowardly self-preservationist? Advent, Christ came once, second Advent, he's coming again. That vision says we're raising prophets for the king. Second component of this forward-looking vision is context. So Zechariah is speaking into his son, saying, son, you're going to be a prophet to tell of the coming Christ. And then he tells them what the context is that he's going to actually be speaking into. Verse 78, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What's the context here? He's saying to his son, little baby at that point, we assume he raised him in that context. Son, you're gonna prophesy. You're gonna, you're gonna speak the truth of salvation from God in Christ. And guess what? You're gonna speak it in the midst of darkness, in the shadow of death, that that's the context. Again, so appropriate for our day. As we read of, of the terror and of the attacks and of the infiltration of evil into our very presence that has some of you understandably not wanting to leave the house with your children, Right? As, as, as organizations like ISIS, a generation from now, it'll probably be called something different. As the terror increases, as sexuality and marriage and gender gets redefined in our land, that's the context. That's the darkness. You've got two choices. One is you shield your children or those that you're discipling from it in hopes they'll never face it. Or you prepare them for the darkness. And I can tell you the approach that says, I'm gonna shield them from it, hoping they never see it, that will come back to haunt you because they will see it. 
They will face it. And if you haven't prepared them, they're either going to run from it, they're going to be struck with fear, or they're going to embrace it. Advent births this vision of context that says we are going to prepare our children. We're going to help them understand how the the victorious gospel of Jesus Christ speaks into ISIS. We're going to prepare them how the victorious gospel of Jesus Christ speaks into sexuality and marriage and all of that being redefined in our land. We're going to We're going to prepare them because they come with the power and the authority of Jesus Christ and our vision. Forward-looking is to say, I'm going to raise a son, a daughter, to be prepared without fear to face that brokenness because Jesus Christ, the King of the universe, is with them. You wed these together, vision of salvation accomplished, vision of salvation applied into a broken world, they come together beautifully. And I'll close with with this illustration to try to get you to see how they come together. My daughter used to have uh, these blank white sheets of paper. They were a special kind of paper, paper, but she'd have these blank white sheets of paper and then this special pen. And I've shared this before, but when she took the pen, she takes the pen, it's, a, it's an invisible pen. If you took a normal sheet of paper and wrote on it, you wouldn't see anything. It's an invisible pen. But when she would color it over this special piece of white paper, the colors and the picture would come to life. And as she colored in the whole thing, this beautiful picture would emerge. And what's so striking about that is that it was invisible. It was invisible. You couldn't see it. And any pen wouldn't reveal it. It took this special pen. Salvation has already been accomplished. The kingdom is already here. It's invisible. You say, well, what makes it visible? What's the special pen? It's the church. It's you. It's your children. That every stroke of your life, every word you speak, everywhere you go, every touch that you have, whatever it is, you are, you are brush-stroking across this piece of paper and the kingdom of God comes to life. Yes, there's evil and brokenness and, it, and, and the canvas looks pretty blank. The kingdom looks pretty invisible and God says, you are my people. You're the ones that bring the kingdom to life in the midst of evil, in the midst of brokenness. And to have that vision, that's what Advent births. It's a vision of salvation accomplished. The kingdom's already here and a vision of, but it needs to be applied. And the Lord Jesus does it through his people and through a next generation of disciples who are bold and courageous. Let's pray. Father, as we enjoy this meal this morning of communion, would you help us to see in this meal the forward-looking vision that you intend for it to have? 
that it both is a meal that we celebrate salvation already accomplished, but it is a meal where we taste what's coming. And as sure as we taste the juice and we taste the bread, so as sure is your kingdom that is coming and that has already come. And so, Father, would you bless this time in a very powerful way as you promise through this meal to pour your spirit out into our hearts that we would be renewed and that this Advent season would birth life into us. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.